Hey guys, O'Reilly here. Episode 27 is upon us, and with it brings the Autumn Stones from Toronto. We sat down and talked to them about Escapist, their unique sound, a lot of saxophone. And it was kind of fun because it felt like every member of the band was a philosopher. And they, they get into little debates, and some of them are still in here, some of them are cut out just for time and things like that. But it was, it was really cool to see a band functioning on a level wherein, and talking to them, you get the sense that it's just sort of a, the Autumn Stones are just like a really well-oiled machine, and everybody has a part to play, and they just do it really well. And that was really good to see. And then we get in some interesting territory wherein we, we sort of talk about how much is it on the artist to sort of capture a place and a time these days when there's just so much around us, especially social media wise, that is sort of telling us constantly what place we're in and then just forgetting about it, you know, a day or two days later or something like that. Unfortunately, they did play live in the studio, but I had a faulty cable that just kept bringing in a ton of noise on the vocal track. And so a lot of it was, oh, it was pretty unusable. It was, it, 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 oh, it was bad. But we do still have the studio versions of their song, which you are going to hear uh, shortly. Episode 27, Autumn Stones. You're going to enjoy it.
me, um, I guess the biggest influences were like uh, a lot of British bands like post-punk and punk. The first band that made me want to be in a band was the Sex Pistols. They're not, they're not a band that I still really listen to much anymore, but there's something about the sort of theatricality of the Pistols and like their energy and the reaction they got out of people. It just seemed so exciting. That's kind of what germinated the idea of, of forming, forming a band for me. And like in high school, I actually wanted to start a punk band. And me and I used to bo- bother my friend Brendan, who, <clears throat> who I actually have a project with right now, a musical project with. And back then in high school, I used to bug him to try to start a punk band called the Jolly Wankers. And, uh, but I never got off the ground. It was around the time when I first picked up guitar when I was like 17. Um, but then from there, the post-punk stuff, like the Smiths, and um, Joy Division were big. It's kind of like New Order and also a lot of the shoegaze stuff from the early 90s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anything that's kind of like really melody-centric and has some kind of somewhat intelligent lyrics. And now, at what point did you become self-aware and realize, okay, the Sex Pistols were their own thing. The, their defining characteristic was not that they didn't know how to play their instruments. Mm-hmm. So let's do that again and see if that becomes successful. Well, first of all, I mean, the music's really good, but it's also the the excitement that they generated. Like, they wrote about stuff that was, like, kind of controversial. They, they touched nerves. They weren't afraid to take chances. And I think a lot of the bands and songwriters that I like have always been artists that aren't afraid to kind of be themselves and stand out a bit. Not necessarily being really confrontational the way the Pistols were, but write about things that most artists don't write about. You know, like Morrissey would be a case in point. Like, he'd write about things like... Heaven knows I'm miserable now. Like who would, who would think of writing a song like that? But Morrissey, right? Well, those kind of unique songwriters, I guess, have been the ones that I've been attracted to. People who are sort of pushing boundaries in interesting ways that other people hadn't tried before, which I think is is really cool. Like I feel like we're sort of living in this age which is very, very, very apathetic. Like when Rite of Spring came out, there was a riot in Paris because people were like, "This isn't music." I don't have that anymore. Like, there's nobody who would have been the last one. Gigi Lin, and he had to, like, eat his own shit to, like, get people to react. Like, that would have been... So Stravinsky's the original punk? <laughs> I think he is. Well, not the original one. There's been so many people who, you know, lost patronage from the church because they used an evil chord, a chord that you couldn't use because it was like, what is it, a diminished fourth, I think, was the one that the church outlawed for a while because it was the devil's chord. Yeah. And there's also the brown note, but that's different. <laughs> um, for me, like I've never really been that interested in, in recreating the controversy that the Pistols did or being really like boundary pushing. For me, it's more about just like being yourself and, and touching people in some way. Um, like those, like Morrissey was important, not because he was the first one to write those kind of songs, but because he wrote about those songs and they resonated with people, you know, like... Even if somebody had done it before, it still would have been meaningful. Still, yeah, like there's something maudlin and everyday <laughs> to to a lot of of Morrissey's uh, opinions, if we call them opinions. I, I really mean the lyrics, but but I mean that's the human condition. I was looking for a job. I found a job. Hey, it's success! But heaven knows I'm miserable now, and it's because I found a job. And that's pretty much how we all feel. It's. Uh, it's a radical opinion for its time, just as much as uh, some of the things that, sure, that the Sex Pistols. Yeah, like musically, we're we're pretty conventional. Like we just try to write cool melodies and 
uh, write songs that touch people. We're not really trying to like break any boundaries or invent a new genre of music or anything like that. It's just like, we're more modest than that. And now, how did you guys start up? Because I feel like any idea that starts with sort of, hey, I have a saxophone and dot, 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 is sort of doomed to fail. But you guys <laughs> persevere on. Like, what, how did you guys get started and sort of follow? If you think about it, actually, a lot of the music we were listening to on the car on the way over, like old school rock and roll, like saxophone used to be standard in mm-hmm. rock bands. Like you'd have your rhythm guitar and the sax actually did a lot of the leads back in, in like the 50s. So it's not really that revolutionary or new. It's just something that I guess hasn't been very common since like maybe the 80s. Saxophones were kind of big in the 80s. And like, <laughs> it took a turn for the worse, I guess. But um, Very worse, yeah. <laughs> as with anything, you can overdo it. But <laughs> Saxophone's a good, in- it's a good like secondary melody instrument. Like kind of fills the gaps between the spots where I'm singing. He's not saying that you can overdo saxophone now. No. By the way. Especially now that you can sample it so well. You could probably even have an album that was just all saxophone, right? Oh, I'm working on it. It's called Sax of One. <laughs> That's disgusting. I will say this about the saxophone. The band, uh, we'll probably circle back to this uh, later, but the band started without me. I, I joined in, in time for the well, for the beginnings of the, of the second album. The first album was only out recently, and then I signed on. I was responding to an ad that Kieran had posted where he actively specified that he wanted a lead saxophone player. He actually used those words. And that was a, a dream come true for me on a number of levels because, you know, aside from obviously playing saxophone, a lot of the bands that he mentioned in his ad as influencing him were equally important to me. So it was a very good fit. And a pretty rare fit, too. Not a lot of people are looking for that combination. I would like to think that that one of the things that I brought to the table, though, is that everything you just mentioned about the saxophone a minute ago, Kieran, I don't play the saxophone that way at all. I don't sound like any of of these um, bebop tenor guys from the 50s and 60s. And uh, and then by the time the, that uh, still the tenor... Uh, in the late 70s and, and then through the 80s became this sort of uh, uh, swank and cheesy um, Kenny G-ish kind of thing. Um, I don't sound like that either. Mm-hmm. These are all decent players and I don't disparage them. But uh, but my influences, uh, uh, the, the artists that, that have, have pushed me towards what I'm trying to sound like are, are much, much less common and, and I'm I'm pretty proud of that. I would like to say that no one on this podcast will ever disparage uh, Guinness World Record holder Kenny G. <clears throat> Longest note ever. Really? How yeah, uh, it's like four hours. It's something crazy like that. Because uh, uh, he's doing circular breathing. breathing. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I guess if you need to get into Guinness, you know, fair enough. <laughs> and I'm sure he's a nice guy. <laughs> Look, he probably doesn't like my music either, so that's fine. Or which is to say, if he even heard our music, he probably wouldn't like it. So. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know. Music doesn't need to be all things to all people, right? That's true. Uh, actually, the more you try to appeal to everybody, I think the less relevant you become. Let's talk about Escapist for a second, because one of the things that I dislike about it is it sounds like you guys are having fun and like enjoying yourselves on this record. Yeah. Why? Um, Why try to uplift people? Um, well, don't read the lyric sheet, then. <laughs> Is it sarcastic or your question? I mean, or oh yeah, no. I guess some, sometimes people would interpret the songs as being like 
kind of melancholy and I never know what to think. I, I think of them as being pretty uplifting and like positive, but and I guess the subject matter is sort of like somewhat dark, but like I try to make sure that it's that it comes across in an energetic, like inspiring way. Just to, the music is supposed to make you feel good. Like that's that's what it's for, I think. Is isn't it fair to, to say that I mean, because you're the songwriter and we're the arrangers, uh, you know, in, in, in committee with you, but because you're the songwriter, I feel like my observation is is third party. And my observation is that we've got that smithsiness about us, not just necessarily what your voice sounds like because by a freak accident, hour. but we've got the very, very happy music and the lyrics that if you read them in isolation, they're... They're they're not negative per se. They're not, they're they're not Morrissey level, but but you've got you've got a lot of observations to make about people and yeah. and the world and uh, and uh, it's not happy fun time. It's like it's touching on reality, but it's also um, there's beauty in it as well. You want it to be sort of balanced, not be too depressing. Like you're doing that sort of born to run thing where like everybody loves putting the song on, but they if, if they actually listen to the lyrics, they'd be like, oh gosh darn it. <laughs> Yeah. This isn't what I thought it was. Yeah. Why am I playing it at all my conventions? Or born in the U.S. I think you mean like born in the U.S. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, same idea. That was, I guess that was about Vietnam, that song. We don't know that they escaped that town in Born to Run, though. So that might actually still be a really <laughs> negative song about all your petty little small town dreams. Because guess what? You're still going to work in that corner store. <laughs> one, of my favorite, um, one of my favorite Robert Pollard jokes is, if, if Bruce Springsteen's the boss, I quit. <laughs> I don't mind Bruce Springsteen though he's okay I love Bruce Springsteen there I said it but you know getting back to the sax thing again I don't I don't I don't I don't intentionally not play like Clarence Clemens but I don't sound like Clarence Clemens at all like it, it, it's uh, I would like to think that what we're doing with the saxophone is you don't hear that anywhere even if saxophone is making a comeback these days which some people say it is and obviously we're all for that <laughs> you're going to get something pretty different from us. Well, let's go to how, how you guys start writing for this album. And like what, uh, I think one of the more, more fascinating things is sort of the stuff that you learned from the previous album and that you brought into the new one that you said, okay, these are the elements we want to keep. These are the things we want to change to sort of evolve in a certain way. And so could you take us behind, like how you guys were feeling when you started uh, writing? Yeah. If the first album that a lot of those songs were written at, at a time when I was sort of, there's a lot of like love songs, like lovey-dovey kind of songs on it. And there's, I think there's a lot more optimism on the first album, whereas I think with Escape is, it's a bit more like there's some political, social issues going on. I think it's because at the time we were working on the first record, like I was, I was married and, and, but for Escape is I had just been divorced. And I think my outlook on life had kind of changed a bit. I was a bit more mature and not, not as optimistic, a bit more, I guess, of a realist. Going into Escapist, I think my Ooh. writing is more more realist rather than optimist. Wow, that, <laughs> that could Downer. be. <laughs> that is a big change. I was looking for a wife, and then I found a wife. Not for you. Heaven knows. And so, uh, like, how do, how do you start writing a song now? Post divorce, post Escapist, post Escapist, or no, for Escapist, oh. like. Were you going sort of chords first? Were you going first lyrics first? Like, what were, what were the things that you're really trying oh, to concentrate see, on? See, that, that approach, like the musical approach, is, has always been fairly similar. Like, I've always put the melody first. Like, I'll, 
I'll usually bang on the guitar and try to come up with a melody and start with that. Because I just find it so much much easier to sort of get your lyrics to fit a melody than it is to do it the other way around, where you've got like your lyrics and then try to shape a melody out of that. It's just more complicated, so it just makes more sense if you're if you're like a melody based band, start with a melody and just you know make the lyrics comport to that. It's like lyrics are important, but they're not. I don't think they're first and foremost. It's not like it's not poetry that we're doing here. It's like it's pop music. So yeah, like you want to have smart lyrics, but they they shouldn't be the the center of attention. Like it's the melodies and the musical elements should be first and foremost. And now, uh, when you're writing melody, are you keeping in mind that there will be a uh, a first chair saxophone is playing as well? Um. Yeah, yeah, I usually try to make, like, because I think people like, like, for me as a listener, I like the idea of having a break from the singer and having something else take over the melody, some other focal point. So that's kind of where that idea comes from with the saxophone, or on the first record, it was trumpet and trombone. And then flipping that around, what's it like coming into the studio and having a song sort of presented to you, I would say, and then just sort of being like, okay, I need to find these parts. How much do you want to fill out? a song knowing that you can play it and then how much do you want to overdub it? Like what's, what's your process in arranging these things in the studio in the moment is, um, that that's more on the microcosmic scale because we're not in the studio that often, but we, we arranged these, these songs in practice over, over weeks and months and, and literally years for some of them. Kieran actually, um, writes very strong, uh, demos. Well, he's just a good songwriter period. Um, what I really meant to say is that he won't release a demo to the group for consideration until he feels it's at a fairly polished point. He's usually got his lyrics figured out. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here. And, and he's usually got most of the riffs figured out. He does, he does home recordings on a, on a Mellotron. And uh, so when it gets to us, we just, we just grab our parts and, 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 and start shaping them. I get a lot of freedom personally, especially with the solos. I can, I, I certainly write all my own solos, and that's um, that's fun. Most of my riffs are written for me, and I'll just polish them and adjust them along with him in practice. And uh, it's a it's a good it's a good collaboration level. Yeah, it's good it works not, for both yeah. of us. It's good to not have the, the the arrangements totally worked out before you bring it to the band because you want the band to be a part of the process of mm-hmm. creating what you're doing. So the arrangement is a good chance for people to put their own spin on things and really bring the song to life because it's one thing to write a good song but if you're if the band doesn't like you need a good band to make it come to life and to perform it well as well so you like the arranging and the performance is i think it's just as just as important as the writing like people tend to think of as the writing as like that's where all the creativity comes in but it's that's just half the creativity like it's part of it it's not all of it like you need to know how to play it like any if you ever seen a crap cover band playing good songs but they sound like crap i mean that clearly proves that it's not all about songwriting it's but uh, where did sort of the energy develop in your music because it is i feel like talking about crap covering bands it's so easy to get sort of people emotional or to sort of access a sad part of their whatever by being like a minor g minor you guys getting this like i'm pretty sad right now and like trying to make them think that like this music is 
something noteworthy, something like important music because it is just all minor. Your stuff is sort of more propulsive. It's like you're pushing people forward and forward and forward through a lot of these bars. Like, how did you come across or how did you start developing that sort of style? My style, I guess, comes from a lot of different sources. Like, I'll just basically from listening to the bands that I've listened to. Essentially, that's where my vocabulary comes from. I think the more energetic stuff is coming from bands like Guided by Voices or like the Stooges or um, Wire, like those kind of post-punk bands that are have a bit more, I don't know, testosterone in their sound. Like I kind of like having having a mix of hard and and soft. You know, it's kind of in our name. Like Autumn Stones is like Autumn is something sort of melancholic and beautiful. Stones is something hard. So I like the idea of, of mixing those two elements. So it's important to have both. I think. How how much does it, like do you guys take songs that you're working on on the road? Like do you start to shape them based on crowd response? Because I find that something I talking to people that a lot of artists find very important is sort of seeing which parts of which songs people react to and making sure that they just like you said you had songs that have been worked on for years in some cases. Mm-hmm. How much do you take that into account and in how you're going to start? In terms of audiences, not probably zero. I don't think. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. (laughs) But we've played. We played. We played all of Escapists for audiences over over those years before we made it. And uh, but I don't think any feedback really registered with us. It was just. It's just we were always going back, always practicing, always polishing. And when you've played the same song four or five, six hundred times. It's a three-minute pop song, but it has to evolve. It won't not evolve. It just comes from being there. We just we just go with what feels right to us. Like um, I could even recall you mentioning that. Like there's songs that we worked on for Escapists that didn't it didn't make the cut, but had positive responses. The song you said it's dead. Mm-hmm. I remember that one. Like some a lot of people really liked that song and thought it should be a single. We don't play it anymore. Like we just junked it. That's because everybody in the band voted against it, except yeah. for the saxophone player. <laughs> yeah. There was a point where we were going to merge that riff with, um, what was it, Perfect Seven? Yeah, yeah, we we're going to salvage it. Which is another song that didn't make the album. We, yeah. we basically had two albums worth when always, we did Escape. Yeah, you can always you know, salvage pieces of songs that you've discarded. Like on like song Sweet Libertine, like the, the whole back part of that song that the last like outro is actually another song oh yeah it was just basically merged to that one and i think that's something a lot of people don't understand going into the studios it's not like a band being like okay we've got nine songs that are just perfect let's let's record them it's you're going in with 18 you're going in with 20 you're going in with at least a lot of times double the amount and so like when you guys are deciding on which songs to sort of put on the album is that a democratic process is that does everybody get a vote or we try to, like, the way I try to work for something like that is try to build a consensus. You know, like, if there's songs that somebody's not into, let's just bring, like, I have a ton of songs to choose from. There's no reason to, like, have songs that maybe one or two members hate and keep playing those songs when you could just bring in another song that we all like. You know? I think if you can't impress the band with the song, like, you're not, you have zero chance of impressing the world with that material. I think yeah. it's better to in terms of songs on your album, I think you really should have everybody on board with every song. I think it's, you gotta set the bar high, I think. One thing that I love about uh, Escape is, is sort of 
I feel like everybody's playing parts that would be in a conventional rock band, but sometimes it seems like you guys are trading places. Like you guys, like for instance, the saxophone's probably the most obvious part, but it seems like you guys are playing around with that sort of idea of like what should be lead, what should be solo, what should be like, uh, should we even have electric guitar on this track, things like that. Like it, it seems like there's a, a eclectic sort of taste mm-hmm. to it. Uh, at what point does that sort of like palette choosing of sounds are going to come in? Uh, does that come into the writing process? Well, I think like most people have, especially these days, have fairly eclectic taste. So like I think you just have to respond to the fact that I myself like a wide variety of music. So I don't want every song to be like super heavy. I don't want every song to be super mellow. So it's just partly to maintain our own interest is to you got to have some variety and mix it up. And that's good for the audience. That's good for the band too. If the band's more engaged, that's gonna also going to be more engaging for the audience. So I think everybody likes to have a bit of variety. Nobody wants like just the same thing over and over again. So you kind of have to. And I like to mix different sounds in there. Like when we go into the studio, I like to make sure that we add a few instruments that are not typically in the band. Like a few of our songs have vibraphone on them, for example. We've got violin on a few tracks. We've got piano on one track on Companions. Um, People like surprises. They like variety like give people what they want i don't want to talk myself out of a job but you could replace you could replace every single saxophone note on escapist every single one with a guitar and you would just be post-punk alt-rock band x and it would probably still sound just great there would be nothing wrong with it I would not go so far as to say it would sound better. But but I'm not necessarily saying that it sounds better with sax. What it sounds with sax is different. And we're not necessarily claiming to be the most original band of all time, but we are trying to do a whole bunch of original things. And 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 the, the sax is a key part of that. The saxophone has kind of like a... like When you play a sax solo versus a guitar solo, like I find like... There's a certain kind of human feel that the saxophone has because it's basically somebody blowing air. So it's, it's almost like singing. It's very close to the sound of a human voice. So I, f- I find that it has that has a quality to it that a guitar just doesn't bring. Like, but that can be very dangerous for a lot of artists uh, to try and because, like, sort of pop music is in itself uh, like a very small target that's constantly moving around. How There must have been at some point like sort of a, a comfort in knowing like if I just if I just did guitars, if I just did guitar, bass, drums, like this would be something. How When did you know that you were like, okay, saxophone needs to be integral? I couldn't really tell you for sure. Like I know I've seen, seen bands do it, like spiritualized. They use a lot of horns. And... Uh, there was a local band that uh, my old band used to play with called the the Moving Targets, who used to use um, trumpets and, and saxophones and that kind of. I remember that being sort of like something that me and my ex partner Kylie were like, "Hey, maybe we should use horns more often. Like, it seems like a good idea." And from there, that that seed was planted around that time, and um, it seemed to work. Like, it's just it was something we tried and it worked. So, like, you know, a lot of a lot of artists just trial and error. Like you, you think what well, maybe this will work? You try it and, it, and it has. Like I'm pretty happy with how how it's worked out. 
And how do you guys make sure that it's not turning into sort of, oh, this is ska, this is like something stereotypical, this is something that has been done before and well-trodden? Like, how did you manage to keep it fresh? Because I will say, you know, uh, listening to it, I there's at no moment where I'm just like, okay, you know, I've heard this being done before, like, in a certain way. Like you say, you, you, you keep trying to keep it unique. Um, how, like, what's that process like? Maybe writing the riffs, maybe playing those riffs, maybe like trying to figure that out. I think a lot of that is just us not knowing how to do those conventional things. Like we don't, <laughs> we don't really know how to make ska or like uh, those kind of like uh, conventional idioms. Like we just kind of do things our own way. It's just it's more probably to do with the ignorance than than pre-planning it, to do it in a unique way. We just it just comes out unique because that's just that's just the way we are. We're so unique. That's beautiful. It's our DNA. <laughs> I, we, we've had a lot of really favorable and kind and generous reviews of, of, of the album. And, and any reviewer will pick out songs just about randomly. You don't know what's going to click with people. And they'll compare us to, to various bands that could very easily be touch points. And half the time they're not. And half the time they are, except it was probably this band was a touch point on that song versus versus what they're saying. But there's no wrong way to listen to something. There's no wrong way to like something. And if, if somebody hears, I remember somebody thought that Time is a River sounds like a Cure song. And I love the oh. Cure, and I can't hear that for a second. But if that's what they want to hear, and I love the Cure, then what's wrong with that? Um, hmm. In terms of how we're analyzing our styles that we're whether we're emulating them or consciously avoiding them while we, while we sculpt. Um, yeah, I don't think there's anything conscious there. It's probably just subconscious uh, stuff sneaks in here and there. There's what we call the ska moment in Endless War in, in the, the solo break. Um, I know that I, I know Robert Smith is like a guitarist that I remember when I first started getting into playing guitar, he, he was a big influence on guitar, so could be that person just picking up on you know some of that dna you know musical dna i guess that's in my head from listening to the cure yeah the same way if we play our own songs 600 times they have to evolve by the same token we have listened to the songs by the artists that we love 600 times and that's got to seep in now that's something interesting that i don't feel like a lot of bands because you guys are on the up and up you're you're professional touring musicians um what is it like a well, somebody flew in from <laughs> another part of Canada. Oh, we like it. We're, we're with you. <laughs> but uh, from your own admission, you're saying you guys aren't doing something new. What is it like when people find sort of that uh, a touchstone that you guys weren't, mm-hmm. you, you didn't plan on that? You, you, you weren't thinking of that when, they, when you created the song, but they're seeing that in those things. Is that complimentary or is that like sort of, ah, oh, you idiots? I always find if people are interested in our music, I'm always flattered by that. Even yeah. if they have some criticisms or whatever, I'm just flattered that anyone takes an interest at all. And the fact that people write articles about us and stuff like that is like, I almost can't believe it sometimes. Like, I'm just like, yeah, cool. <laughs> like, it never, it's very rare that I ever be offended by anything that's, that's something said about us. I can't really think of any time that that's happened. Yeah, I don't disagree. And, and I've had people, I, I've, had I've read, you know, us be compared to to bands that I've never even heard of. I've I've got we all actually we're we're, we're big music geeks. We have we have really deep 
encyclopedic knowledge of bands. We talked about music for most of the drive up here. That's five hours. It, it's it, it's our geek thing, and I've still, nonetheless, had people compare us to bands that I haven't heard of. Again, it's not wrong. It just it's not what we intended. But if that's what they got out of it, it's cool. The way I see it is that they're just kind of like they're connecting an emotion that they felt when they heard that band. It's like, oh, this touched that similar nerve with me, which is like, I don't see how you get offended by that. It's just like, oh, it's, it's affecting you. That's, that's cool. That's flattering, I think. It's this thing that we keep coming back to in the podcast where sort of the, the feedback loop between fan and creator keeps getting tighter and tighter and tighter as we get to like Twitter and things like that. And do you guys see that as a good thing or a bad thing? Because back in the day, you could have someone release their debut album, someone like, you know, your Prince, your David Bowie or something, and it would just be shrouded in mysticism. Like you wouldn't know where they came from. You wouldn't know all the backroom sort of production talk about it. But now I feel like a lot of people, a lot of fans really love being able to mm. get in touch with their favorite authors, with their favorite musicians, with these with these people who, is, is, is there a loss in not having that mystique around anymore? I think so. I think totally. And I, I know I probably sound like an, a little bit too old school saying that, but um, like it speaks to what we were talking about earlier about real friends, like Twitter friends and Facebook friends, like social media kind of sort of cheapens things a bit in that it's anyone can do it. So it's not, doesn't really have as much value. And then if you're an artist who's, who's like whoever, David Bowie or whoever, like you should be spending your time making your art. You shouldn't be spending hours on social media. Like it's it's a distraction from your work. Actually, I mean, maybe spend some time doing it, but like putting too much emphasis on it, I think is not a good thing. But it's good to, it is a valuable tool for sure. Like I think from a marketing perspective, super valuable, and from having some kind of connection to your fans, like it's it does have some value. There's pros and cons, right? Yeah. You you just addressed one of each, and and there's <laughs> we could talk about this for three hours. <laughs> Are we on Twitter for three hours a day? Might be even a valid question. Um, some days we are. Why? Could be any number of reasons. If you want to be Machiavellian about it, utilitarian about it, I won't deny that I use Twitter strategically to communicate with not just fans but also potential fans if i'm treating it like a business though let's call it a small b business the communications have to be sincere i don't suck up to anybody on twitter because frankly life is too short i'm only going to approach one of these as i've identified potential fans if i think that they've actually said something that is of interest to me and to us and that I have something interesting to say back. And then the theory that's driving that is that if we have that much in common, maybe you'll like our music. I've been using Twitter that way for X number of years to help us build a fan base. And it's, if I might say, been pretty successful. Yeah, totally. It's probably led to the majority of the reviews that we've gotten. Well, there's this part of me that's like, and I watched, I think some of the reasons why we like shows like Mad Men and like other 80s shows or whatever, we have this like analog nostalgia, which is starting to arise now where people are like, what it would be like if there was no social media or no internet, like, 
you get nostalgic about those days where things seemed a bit simpler. There's more mystique or whatever, but we're not going back there. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe it doesn't really matter that much. And I think one of the other things that uh, a lot of uh, bands these days don't realize when they are sort of they are trying to create like, oh, I'm going to be mysterious and just release this one thing. I'm going to release things like Aphex Twin does. Well, Aphex Twin has like a whole history of releasing things crazily, so he can do that. People will search it out. Nobody's going to search you out because they don't know who you are. But um, it's just like with sort of the shortening of that feedback loop between fan to creator is also people are so overwhelmed with information these days that they don't remember things that happened two days ago, three days ago in terms of social media stuff. So you could do that sort of outreach thing. You could be reaching out to people and maybe maybe it fails, maybe it doesn't go so well. But, you know, a day or two, the everybody has social media garbage. It's just sort of wiped clean. And so you can sort of break through a little bit more in that way, I feel, wherein people won't remember failed tweets or if you got sponsored tweets or something like that. Like, it, 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 we're, in a different, we're in a different sort of social economy now. So people will notice the good stuff, but the, the bad stuff will mostly get ignored. The unless remember- it's really offensive or something. Like <laughs> yeah. I want to move on from Twitter because, honestly, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to not talk. I, I, I'm, I, I have so much to say, and it's, you're going to lose audience. But I mean, it is something that is essential to sort of band management 101 these days. Like you are, if you're in a band these days, you are sort of a small B business. You got to you gotta be doing all these yeah. different things. And I feel like a lot of people who are starting bands don't realize that it's not just about crafting the perfect song. Yeah. It's about sort of that tenacity, that persistence to do these sorts of things and just... It really helps to have somebody who is media savvy in the band or a manager or whoever who can take care of that side of things because... If you're whatever a writer, musician, whatever, like you don't necessarily have the time or the expertise to do that. And these days, it's almost like there's an expectation to wear so many hats. And like as a singer-songwriter, recording artist, you're already wearing a ton of hats. Like and now you're expected to be a social media guru as well. It's like there's only so much you can do. Yeah, you know. And well, if, you, if you try to put all the skills in one person, it's like. There's, there's not many people who can, who can do all those things. There's a certain possibly required naivete to being an artist in any medium, but let's restrict it to music. How many musicians, I was going to say aspiring, but let's just call them musicians because they are. How many people who have recorded their own albums, whether they did it professionally in a studio with five grand or whether they did it at home, how many people who bothered to take the time to craft their art and make a statement and feel proud of that, as they should, because it's an accomplishment, how many of them feel that it's adequate to simply send a blanket email out to every media address they can find saying, <laughs> announcing my album, and that at this point, due diligence. I've sent the email. They will listen to my album the reviews will come in because I've worked hard and, uh, and I should be able to take what I'm doing to the next level now. That never happens. Yeah. It never, never happens. Nobody is kicking down your door to get to you, Artist X. Nobody is ringing your phone off the hook. Every scrap of coverage we've had for escapists has been hard won by approaching whether it's the media whether it's the industry whether it's radio 
whomever uh, multiple times from multiple directions uh, being polite and persistent yeah record I mean record companies traditionally have a publicity department so we live in this new indie paradigm it's like bands can't just be publicity departments they don't know how to do it they don't have the resources they don't have the skills the knowledge or the connections so that's the downside of the the indie paradigm is like now you got to do everything that in the old days like everything was labor was all divided amongst all these people now it's like you have to be an expert in 500 things that's that's the downside of that but let's talk about uh, what sort of themes were you trying to bring out in this album um well you you may notice that um like there's a lot of talk of like um like re- religious themes like end of faith in with you had crowd is about like religious extremism endless war is actually about that sort of struggle between like like a faith-based worldview and like a more sort of rational worldview which is like an age-old um theme for me it's it's really about i'm just trying to tell good stories i'm trying to touch a nerve with people and um i'm reminded of an, an interview that i was just watching the other day uh, with nino simone how, who was saying how like an artist's job is just to reflect the times what's going on like that's that's what's going on there's so few artists who are talking about what's going on with this whole like terrorism and stuff like nobody talks about it because people are terrified of like saying the wrong thing mm-hmm. but it is what's going on and i feel like as a storyteller it's my job to deal with that in some way in a way that's not like necessarily attacking any group of persons but like dealing with the fact that this is the reality and um try to like get people to think about it in a way that's like positive and like um that moves them to uh i don't know um try to make things better try to come to a better understanding of why like why is this happening like why is this clash also like class between muslims and every and the west but like between the sort of like ex- these extreme ideologies that are like all over the place now it's not just the islamic extremism but you've got like white supremacism and black supremacism and all that stuff like there's got to be a better way to for people to like resolve their differences so i try to i don't know just deal with it in a way not to like tell people how to think or anything but just kind of reflect what's going on now that can be uh, these days and this is something that uh, we talked to the peptides about where all their songs are sort of satires on uh on themes but these days people can pluck out sort of just a little couplet just like a little bit all that they need to sort of say something negative yeah negative to denounce you like do you lean into that do you like how do you there there has to be uh, a want to sort of play it safe. Like, why do you start to lean into these yeah. issues? Surprisingly, we haven't had any pushback on this stuff. Like, I was actually, when we put out the end of phase single, I was actually afraid that we might, you know, get people, like, giving a shit about it. But that never happened. Like, I guess it just, it's it's such that, I mean, if you look at the authors who've inspired me, like Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and those guys... Like they're huge bestseller art like authors like so obviously this is these are themes that are resonating with people already mm-hmm. so I think people are ready for for these ideas like they're not they're not really that shocking to people maybe not as shocking as I, I was I thought they might be I think most people it's certainly true of me but I, 
I, I would venture to say that most people listen to the music first, any music, yeah. and the lyrics second. There's been any number of instances where there's a song that I've known for, for years, but I haven't properly listened to the lyrics, and then one day the penny drops. <laughs> I suspect that's the case with a lot of our material. I would also venture to say that Kieran's a very subtle writer, he he touches on some very dangerous topics, but he does it with a very soft hand. And um, he doesn't come across as, as radical or extreme, even if he's talking about radical or extreme topics. Mm -hmm. If you were to sit down and re just read the lyrics on their own for any one of those songs that he just mentioned, um, they're they're very... They're, they're not rigidly structured, but they're very structured, well-thought-out poems is what they are. He's, he's a poet more than a lyricist, and I think that's an advantage, too. Now, do you do something like this to make sure that these songs do reflect the time, that they are something that will... Because, I mean, as a listener, you'll go back and listen to songs, I mean, not so much me with prog rock, but like other things like, uh, you know, What's Going On, Marvin Gaye, uh, sort of coming back from Vietnam, those sorts of things, you listen to it and it is like a beautiful artifact of that time. Are you trying to write to make sure that that is, like you are as representative as possible? Not exactly. I want to be, I want to deal with what's going on, but at the same time, like um, the egotistical, e egotistical part of me as an artist is like, I want the songs to last too. I don't want them to be too married to a particular moment. So like, you know, it's not like Endless War, that theme, even though that's a hot topic, right now it's it's also something that's been going on forever like that struggle between you know reason and tradition like it's always it's always been there and it'll probably always be there and hence, so how do you the title <laughs> endless war how do you make sure that you're not being exploitative with these things like um the key i think is to be humble don't ever think that you have the answers don't ever like my rule is don't talk down to the audience like don't assume that your audience you're educating the audience like the audience is probably as smart as you mm -hmm. um engage their sense of humor engage their compassion don't be a preacher like don't say this is the way it's gotta be like i have the answers like i don't have the answers to this stuff i'm just reflecting what's going on well you know you you, you mentioned you mentioned works that are riveted in their time and and there are a lot of great songs on Pink Floyd's The Final Cut, but it's entirely about the Falkland Islands. It ends up becoming a little bit alienating so many, many years, decades beyond the event. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting historical snapshot at this point. And the lyrics actually overshadow the music now. I, if you're I'm, a fan. Just, I'm just tempted to jump in, though. <laughs> but at the same time, like I'm, I'm getting a, a bit of interest from recently going backwards and reading things that were written maybe you know between the wars or prior to world war one or you know during other times of conflict or even just from a few years ago when it, it, it might have been falklands or you know any other of the the conflicts and and comparing the sort of thoughts that people were having then to our understanding of history because of course at the time when they're writing them it's so fresh it's so hot and now we have a little bit of distance from it we have a different perspective but to go back and hear the voices from that time can also be um 
both uh, interesting just to see how it's different from our more nuanced understanding of a situation now, or to see how it's actually kind of reflective of some other situation we might have going on with a different thing. I think I, th I think rooting yourself to a, as you say, marrying to a, a like a, a real specific time and place and event that's going on can be limiting. But I also think that it can have value later. It doesn't it doesn't make it obsolete later. Oh, it can totally be a service, and and actually filters in and of themselves are great things, right? If your filter is I'm going to do this album about this war or this particular year or this particular event, then actually. As an artist, that, that, that's a good solution in some, in some respects because it helps you. There's so much noise and information that you're trying to process yourself. If you say, I'm just doing this album about Roger Waters, mm -hmm. Falkland Islands, and thinking about my father and World War II at the same time, and comparing these two wars that are you know, four decades apart, it might even be easier to write that way, for lack of a better way to put it. Pink Floyd, are you guys The Wall or Dark Side of the Moon? Piper Gates of Dawn. Neither. <laughs> Piper Gates of Dawn is the uh, only I, one. I will tell you in, in pure honesty, not trying to sound like, well, like he just sounded, um, well, dark that side. half the time I'm dark side and half the time I'm metal. If I had to pick between the two, it'd be, it'd be dark side. But really, it's Piper at the Gates of Dawn, Sid Barrett. So for, for so long for me, uh, dark side has sort of been just like this lovely little it's a, in and of itself, it's a concept album about like the day in the life of the average Brit. And then it just, you know, it starts the same way as it ends and you can just keep going on and on forever. I really enjoyed that. And then the wall is just sort of like, oh, Roger Waters is kind of going insane and he's spitting on some Jewish people at his shows. Let's, uh, really? let's just follow that wormhole. Uh, and it's, I don't know. It just, I can't listen to it anymore. Like listen to it anymore and just, not see it as like sort of one guy's super indulgence of how he was feeling at a very certain time and no one else in the world is feeling that and maybe there is some value to it but it's just so hyperbolic that i can't do it anymore and the last question we'll probably edit that last part out Wait, we can't keep talking about that Wait, <laughs> what about roger waters what god wants so that's not the name of it it's muse to death that's, the that's name right of the muse to Sorry. death right muse to death the first time i heard that record which would have been early 90s it i mean i did i Frankly, I was never a big Pink Floyd fan. I didn't know a whole lot about it. You know, I knew the, knew a few of the hits, and that was that was about it. And when I first heard "Amused to Death," I was really taken with it. And for the next year, I listened to that record a whole lot. It's a good album. And and now I still come back to it every now and again. And it it sometimes it, it, there's a lot of friction in that record, and sometimes it's almost too much to listen to. And I have to like skip ahead because I'm feeling a little, um, you know, somehow uncomfortable. But uh, but that's a really good record. And, well, and you got some of uh, Mark Knopfler's guitar, which is amazing. Yeah. Didn't you think, though, that if the Floyd had been together at that time, can you imagine what they would have come up with, right? With that one just being driven entirely by Waters, mm -hmm. if they could have actually just not been split up, that, that could have been a very important album. There's just some great stuff on there. Um, you're saying something about the wall. Oh, yeah. My, my thing with the wall is that it's a, it's a classic double album. And... Uh, I'm, I, I apologize to all the hate mail we're going to get, but I've often <laughs> felt that it shouldn't be a double album. It's one of those cases of you're probably pushing it. You don't quite have the material, especially for a concept album. There are a lot of great songs that kick in by the end of side four or, or by the end of disc two, if you will. 
but but um, it's a very strong first half. It's a weaker second half, mm-hmm. and nothing proved that to me more than when I finally saw the tour he did a few years ago, where the point of the tour was that they couldn't do the wall. They canceled the wall tour after something like what twelve, fifteen dates year of because it was it was too just large scale they couldn't they couldn't move it around properly but when he was doing it even though there was some better uh, production quality it was essentially this is how we intended to do it so mm-hmm. we weren't taking full advantage of nouveau tech yeah and it was painfully clear in the second half of of the wall that there just wasn't enough going on yeah that's one of the things I found. Uh, so again, I love Genesis, but uh, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which is a double album, which sort of suffers from the same thing, where it's some fantastic, some of their finest tracks, but too much. But the second half of it crap. kind of falters because it is a lot of it's a lot of indulgent tracks, and so it's 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 sort of it was always underrated and now it's coming up and i think it's just now passing the point where it's becoming overrated where like a lot of people are saying this is their finest album and they're saying it because that's the sort of uh hipstery thing to do where it's like this is the one album everybody else liked the least i'm gonna say that i like it the most Mm -hmm. when there are a lot of faults in it that you're just glancing over and with that uh let's get to our final question which we ask everybody at the end of this uh, at the end of Stonehall sessions, to really, truly get a sense of, are they real artists or have they just been sort of hoodwinking us the entire time? And it is which former frontman of Genesis has been more inspirational to you individually, Peter Gabriel or Phil Collins? Uh, I guess Peter Gabriel. I, I've never. I think I'm not really given Genesis enough attention that I probably should have because I know one of my favorite artists, Robert Pollard, is a big fan of early Genesis. So I've always meant to explore their early stuff, but I ne- I've never done it. So I'm just going to assume, I'm going to take Robert Pollard's word for it and say that it's <laughs> Peter Gabriel. You're next. Um, well, I'll tell a Phil Collins story from an interview I was listening to uh, of his from Sometime in the last decade, I can't remember exactly what the date was now, but he uh, was on Junket on a promo tour, uh, and he's staying at a hotel, and he's gone out for the day to do some interviews, and he's he's come back, and he's staying at the same hotel as a some prominent or up-and-coming uh, hip-hop artist who he doesn't really know who that is, and he doesn't name them in the story either. I'm not holding back. But he said, you know, he had this entourage of people and hangers on and he said well you know like I just I'm here by myself I don't have a tour manager I don't have anyone I I walked out of the hotel myself and went to my interviews and came back by myself and 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 this artist um you know is is moving from place to place with a you know entourage of of, you know 10 12 16 people whatever it might be and he's like, well, you know, he's paying all those people. They're, they're not just hanging around because they're buddies and that sort of stuff. And it's like, this is a very expensive proposition. I think he should know that, <laughs> you know, that that's great to do for a while, but you're going to have to be a, you know, a little more prudent as as you go along. And And how I feel about Phil Collins for other contributions he's made to my life, <laughs> that was the one that sticks with me the most. Gabriel or Collins? Come on. 
What do you got? I couldn't say anything to either, really. Keep in mind, they were both originally drummers. Yep, absolutely they were. That's about it. <laughs> Sitting on the uh, Not post. surprisingly, I have a very long answer for this. So the, the answer is Gabriel. It's for any number of reasons, but one is that um, my gateway drug to Genesis was Fish Era Marillion. I could recite every single lyric from those four albums right here, right now, but we have neither time nor interest. They were basically shamelessly ripping off the Gabriel era Genesis 10 years later. So when you started with that, it's pretty easy to go back to the other. So that'll always be the knee jerk for me. Mm -hmm. But obviously your, your, your question poses some challenges because Phil Collins' achievement on Trick of the Tail I mean, if, if, if you were playing it for uh, uh, an average level Gabriel fan, you could probably trick that person into thinking it was Gabriel. Yeah. It was such a seamless segue. And the fact that he could step out from behind the drum kit and do that and ape him that well, uh, that's a tremendous achievement. And when people talk about the value of Gabriel's solo albums and try to direct compare them to what Collins was doing, they're forgetting that Collins was doing the drum sound on those Gabriel albums and true. created that entire, for better or for worse, 80s drum sound, not with his own solo projects, but with Gabriel. And so did he descend into a certain level of pop that might not appeal to everybody in this room? Collins? Yes, probably. Did he divorce his wife by sending her a fax? Definitely. <laughs> Did Black Francis break up the Pixies the same way? Yes, but we're, we're getting off topic. The point is, yeah, I'm going to go with Gabriel. But Collins, people are too hard on him because of his latter days. Has anyone ever given the answer of Phil Collins? Oh, absolutely. This is the thing. This is the thing. Anybody sort of born after 1989? Only know those two artists from the Tarzan soundtrack, which Collins did. In the air tonight, the Tarzan soundtrack, and maybe Sledgehammer. And so when they're judging those things, like, I like the Tarzan soundtrack. Can't really remember Sledgehammer. Uh, let's go Collins.
your heart and soul. 